Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. And welcome back to the program again this week. And uh, I, I trust you are enjoying what we're teaching and that you are tuning in every week because we have been building on a series for the last several weeks from the Gospel of John that I think has just been absolutely enlightening. At least it has been for me. I've so enjoyed this. I feel like I've been on a treasure hunt and I'm finding all kinds of gold I never saw before. Uh, the key, you know, that I've used, the key verse in John is from the latter part of John where John said this. He said, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing you would have life through His name. And so the whole purpose of the book of John is a convincing, powerful, I would say argument, but more than an argument, convincing demonstration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now that in surface may, you know, you may not really get what's being said there. But what we've showed you is that every sign He does, every miracle He's done, even the days He does it on, powerfully picture some old covenant idea that should have joggled the minds or memories of this first century bunch of Jews who were waiting on their Messiah King to bring them into the kingdom. The Gospels are not about God making more promises. They were about Him fulfilling the promises that He'd already made. Number one, He fulfills the Abrahamic promise in Christ, because in Christ all of God's promises are yes and amen. And that Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3 and 4, was the seed to whom the promise was made. He was Abraham's seed. He didn't say seeds as of many, but unto thy seed, and one seed, which is Christ. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed. Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He fulfills the Davidic covenant. He's the royal son of David. He's the greater son of David that is now seated on the throne that out of the loins of David would come one and out of that lineage would come one who would sit on the throne forever, who would never be dethroned. He is Lord of lords and King of kings and Jesus is not going to be king. He is king right now. As a matter of fact, He was the fulfillment when He stood even before uh, Pilate, Pilate said, are you a king? And he said, it was for this cause that I was born. I was born to be a king. And then he says to him, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would fight. But now is my kingdom not of this world. But because his kingdom is not of this world, does not mean it's not for this world. He was simply saying, my kingdom is not going to come through military might and power I'm not going to come to lead a revolt like David did against the, revolt, uh, against the Romans. I'm going to establish my kingdom. And he did that in the first century. And when he stood before Pilate, Pilate said, are you the Son of God or not? He said, from henceforth, Jesus quotes this scripture. We don't realize a lot of times when Jesus is talking, he is quoting scriptures that are fulfilled. As he stands before Pilate, he quotes Daniel chapter 7, and from henceforth, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And Caiaphas rent his clothes because Caiaphas knew the Scriptures. And Daniel 7 that said, And I, I beheld 
until one like a son of man. He uses the terminology son of man. Jesus continues to call himself son of man because he is showing them he is the fulfillment of the prophecies in Daniel. He is the Son of Man who would come on a cloud of glory and appear before the Ancient of Days. A lot of times when we read that we think that's Him coming on a cloud to get us, but that's not Him coming on a cloud to get us. That's Him ascending and appearing before the Ancient of Days where He received His coronation as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and at that time the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom would be given to the people of the saints of the Most High God. Jesus was coronated as King over 2,000 years ago. He is King right now. I could also give you further proof in Daniel chapter 2 when he gave uh, the vision of the four uh, of the four nations or kingdoms that would be precede the coming of the Messiah that he said, you know, he begins, if you read it especially in the Amplified Bible, he said you king of Babylon are the head of gold, and after you is going to arise is Darius the Mede. If you read it in the Amplified Bible, it'll tell you exactly who these kings are. And, and after that will come uh, Alexander the Great under the uh, under uh, um, uh, the Grecian Empire, and then after that would come the Roman Empire. That would that, that that the fourth kingdom that would come on the earth. Daniel chapter two would be the Romans, and then he makes this statement: In the days of these final ten kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom will not be left to other people. And so he's establishing the fact that he's Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the royal lineage of David. Uh, then he begins to establish the fact that he is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made under Moses. He is the fulfillment, uh, first of all, of the Passover. He is the true Lamb of God. He is the bread that fell in the wilderness. He says in the Gospel of John, right after Gospel of John, we're going to get to this probably in the next chapter, but John chapter 6, He feeds the multitude. He feeds the 5,000. He does that right after the Feast of Passover. He leaves the Feast of Passover. They cross the Sea of Tiberias. They're in the middle of a wilderness, and Jesus feeds them bread. They said to Him in the wilderness, what sign do you show us? And Jesus said, your fathers ate men in the wilderness and they're dead, but I'm the true bread that came down from heaven. In other words, He brings them out and shows them another miracle or another sign. Watch, just think how this would, you would think if you were in the first century and you knew the stories of Moses, how they were delivered from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness, and God gives them bread. Now fast forward to John chapter 6. Jesus is the real Passover. They just left the Feast of Passover. They crossed the sea. They're now in a wilderness, and He gives them bread. And they said, show us what sign that you're the, you're the Christ. I think Jesus probably went, duh, your fathers just ate man in the wilderness. They're dead, but I'm the true bread. In other words, He's showing them I'm the fulfillment of the bread of heaven. I'm the fulfillment of the Lamb of Passover. I'm the glory cloud. I'm the ark in the river Jordan. All of these things are pictures to show people it was time to cross over out of an old covenant into the new covenant, and that if you believe that, you can have life through His name. And He was promising them the life that was to come, eternal life. And let me say this as well, because I've said this a little bit before, but I want to come back and reiterate it again, is that eternal life is more than just a ticket to heaven. That's part of it. And I'm going to preface what I'm going to say by saying this. First of all, I believe 
that eternal life includes going to heaven when you die. But if you look that in the Greek, it literally, literally says life aeonian or the life of the coming age. The Greek word is age there. And literally could be translated eternal life could be translated the life of the coming age. Now that may not mean anything to you if you don't understand that the age of the law was passing off of the scene and the age of the new covenant was coming on the scene. The age of mercy and grace and peace was coming on the scene. So life, the life of the coming age was more than a ticket to heaven. It was living life in the new covenant living life in the fulfillment of the promises of God, living life that He promised you could have life and that more abundantly. Now let me just come here and read this because I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, conclude the, the first part of John 5 here today. It said, after this there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went to, up to Jerusalem. Now there is Jerusalem by the sheep market, a pool which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now what I showed you in the other three segments is that this feast was probably the feast of Passover, according to Adam Clark. And there was uh, uh, his commentary. And uh, it says, Now there was at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. So secondly, what I shared with you is, it probably was the feast of Passover, Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament picture of Passover. Now the real Lamb of God is on the scene and He's showing you something about the Passover exodus, but this time the exodus is out of a religious bondage and not just out of a physical piece of land. There is at Jerusalem a sheep market. Now that sheep market, that's one of the things that makes me see that this was probably during the Feast of Passovers because the sheep market was where they came to buy and sell the sheep for the sacrifices. It was also the place where the sheep gate was at. And I showed you in prior segments that Jesus said, I am the door into the sheepfold. So everything about this is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment. And so he comes to this sheep market, and what they would do is they would wash these sheep according to legend, and then they would cut the throats of the lambs, and the blood of the lamb would run into the pool, and the pool, the water would be troubled. And when the water was troubled, if an angel came down and troubled the water, whoever got in the water was healed. What I showed you is that Jesus is the true Lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of the Passover. He has brought us to the house of mercy, Bethesda, to where there's five porches, which is the number of grace. He's brought us to the new covenant because under the old covenant we are halt, lame, blind, crippled, and Jesus has come not just to heal us, but to make us whole. And he asked the man, do you want to be made whole? Now let me just go on down through there. It says, in, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Segment prior to this, I told you that Jesus is better than angels according to Hebrews chapter 1. God did not put the world to come in subjection to angels. He did it to a son. And so now we've got better than an angel here. It's waiting on some season to trouble the water. Jesus Himself is standing there. The Son is there to trouble the water. And whoever stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity for 38 years. 
And in review again, I told you in a prior segment, it was 38 years from the time that the men went to spy the land of Canaan, the promised land, and came back with an evil report. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 14, that there was 38 years that went by until all the men of war had died. And so this man laying at this pool crippled for 38 years is a picture of Israel in the Old Covenant wilderness journey, trying to leave the bondage of Egypt and enter into the promised land. And here they are now. Jesus is standing here in front of a bunch of these same religious Jewish people, and now they are in another kind of wilderness. They are captive in the Roman Empire. They are in bondage, but they're not only in bondage to the Romans, they are in bondage to their system and to uh, the performance-based religion of an old covenant paradigm. And Jesus is about to bring a new one, and He doesn't just want to heal them. He wants to make them whole. And this is a powerful picture because Deuteronomy 2.14 said they were there 38 years. Same amount of time that this man had been crippled. Why would you think Jesus would pick this man out? There was multitudes of people here. He could have healed anybody that was there, but he picks a man and specifically points out he was that way for 38 years. It's an incredible picture of another exodus, but this time he wants to bring us to another house of mercy, the true house of mercy, the true sheep gate, the true Lamb of God, the true water troubler, the only one on the planet who can make you whole. And Jesus said, he was in that condition for 38 years, Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And the impotent man answered, sir, answered him, Sir, I have no man, and when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. And Jesus saith unto him, listen to me, this is prophetic word, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because grace, I want to say this especially in this segment, this is really what this is going to be about. Grace is more than just forgiveness. I thank God for forgiving grace. I thank God for saving grace. I thank God for His mercy and His kindness. But I am also deeply grateful and want to put an emphasis on this in this segment. I am thankful for empowering grace. Empowering grace is the one that says you don't have to stay in the condition you're in. See, a great emphasis right now in the message of grace is that God accepts you just the way you are, and that is absolutely true. Your sins and iniquities He will remember no more. But make no mistake about it, He doesn't want to come to this pool and say, I accept you in your crippled state, and I, I think it's one, you know, in other words, He's not celebrating their crippledness, He's coming to heal them of their crippledness. In other words, saving grace saves you. Empowering grace says, take up your bed and walk. Now what to me is symbolized in taking up your bed is, the bed symbolizes rest. So what he's saying is, listen, this is not about human strength. It's not about human power. It's not about performance. See, under the old covenant, it was full of demand. In the new covenant, it's full of supply. Under the old covenant, it was a bunch of rules that made you have to meet a criteria, except no one ever met it. In the new covenant, Jesus does something to empower us. First of all, He troubles the water to heal us. Then He strengthens our legs and gives us the ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, one of the things that I've pointed out to you through this 
is every one of these signs that we've dealt with from John 1 clear through to John 5, John 4, 5 here, is it had to do with water. Jesus turns water to wine. He tells Nicodemus, you need to be born of the water and of the Spirit. He tells the woman at the well, there's water to drink that you know not of. And now here we are in John chapter 5, and the water's being troubled. It's because there's some, some water here that's powerfully speaking of the Spirit that not only has the power to forgive and purge you of your sin, but has the power to say to you, go and sin no more. And he'll say that to this man in just a moment. But he says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. I believe that's a prophetic uh, declaration to somebody listening to my voice today is rise, take up your bed and walk. Stop laying around the pool, waiting on somebody else to put you in and waiting on some season to come because today is your day of salvation. Today is your day for a miracle. Even if you need healing in your body today, right now, if you will receive the fact that Jesus has already paid it all, I say to you, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And he answered them, He that hath made me whole, the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then they asked, then asked they him, What man is it that said to thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. But afterward Jesus findeth him in the temple, and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more lest a worse thing come unto thee. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son of Man can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For that whatever things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead, quickens him, even the Son of Man quickens whom he will. Now let me just stop here for a moment and unpack this again. Because again, I want to really put the emphasis on empowering grace. I have really, you know, I have literally been a pioneer in the gospel of grace for a number of years. I've preached it for a number of years before it got popular. But today, you know, and, and, and people are different stages of where they understand grace. And I think one of the reasons people fear the gospel of grace is because they, they always want to say that grace gives people a license to sin. I want to say, first of all, that people have been sinning without a license for years. But here's what the Scripture says about grace. Number one, he says in Titus, he said, For the grace of God hath appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness. So grace is a teacher that teaches us to deny ungodliness. Number two, the Scripture says, where sin abounds, grace will superabound. Hyperhooper is the Greek word for that. Hypersin requires hypergrace. Now I'm not talking about what people call a greasy grace. Ain't nothing greasy about grace. 
Grace is favor, but it's also an empowering grace. It causes you... See, grace is not the cause of sin. It is the antidote for it. Now, see, law can change your behavior, but grace will change your heart. And what I believe is happening here when Jesus said to this man, do you want to be made whole? He's not just saying, do you want to get healed? Do you want to be made whole? And I believe real wholeness comes, first of all, not just in our physical bodies, but spirit, soul, and body. And what I think he's saying is, listen, once he makes you whole, once, you, once, he, once he makes you whole, spirit, soul, and body, once he begins to touch you in your spirit, your soul, your body will manifest what has been done. What, listen, I said this before, but I'm going to say it again. God is interested more in healing your brokenness than he is of judging you for your sin. He's coming on the scene to heal you of your brokenness. And as he says to this man, listen, he says to him, do you want to be made whole? And he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. That man begins to take up his bed and he begins to walk because that's empowering grace that makes you be able. You can't, listen, once you've been made whole, you can't help but walk in holiness. What, you know, my dad always used to say this. He said, you know what? He said, if you have a Holy Spirit living in you, it's going to produce a holy life. And so when this man is healed, he says to, Jesus says to him, go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. Now, the, one of the things I want to point out here too as well is, this problem this man had may have been the result of his sin, but it was not God putting it on him. God was not putting sickness on him. And I want to say this clearly, because although God in the new, here's one of the promises of the new covenant, your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. That's a powerful promise in Hebrews that is one of the tenets of the new covenant. Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. But just because God is not holding your sin against you, does not mean there's not repercussions to sin. Paul would say it like this, all things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient, and I will not be brought under the power of any. Romans 6 said, should we sin so grace can abound? God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? In other words, once you've been made whole and you've been brought into Christ, you're dead to sin, how can you keep on walking the way you used to walk? He's going to heal you of your crippledness where He empowers you to walk out of the rest of God and the grace of God into the fullness of your promised land, which is more than a piece of real estate. It is rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it is living in a house you did not build. It is eating from vineyards you did not plant. It is long enjoying the fruit of the land and living as it were the days of heaven on earth, according to Deuteronomy chapter 11, the life that He has purposed for you to live. But I want to come back and say this to you again, just it, it, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you, is there are repercussions to your actions. If you sin, God will not leave you. He will pursue you. He did Adam. And God, I, I've said this all over, God is a stalker. He will pursue you. He's like Forrest Gump. He'll take you back when all you got is one dying breath. And Because stupid is what stupid does. But Paul said, all things are expedient, but not all things are lawful to me. I like to use this example. It's not illegal in the state of West Virginia where I live to kiss a rattlesnake. If you want to, it is lawful. You can kiss a rattlesnake. If you want to, you can go catch rattlesnakes all day and kiss rattlesnakes. 
it's lawful, but it's not expedient. In other words, if a rattlesnake bites you, you can't say God did that to you. It was because stupid is what stupid does, and you got bit by a rattlesnake, and that's what's caused the problems. A lot of problems people have is because they, uh, their own sin reproves them, and their own iniquity judges them. It's not God at all. It is them bringing themselves into crises. Romans chapter 1, 2, and even into 3. Don't just read 1 and 2 until you read 3 with it. But Romans 1 and chapter 2 indicts everything and everybody, insiders, outsiders, sinners, Jews, Gentiles, and concludes them all under sin so he can have mercy on all. But what he says there is that, you know, whenever you will not repent, God turns you over to a reprobate mind, and He gives you over to do those things which are not convenient. Now, the, the word reprobate means a mind that is void of judgment. In other words, when you won't listen to good, sound goodness of God that ought to lead you to repentance, your own iniquity is going to bring you into crises or crippledness. You have a soul, protect it. When you put stuff in your soul, it damages your soul. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? But what happens is, is that when you continue to live the lifestyles that Romans 1 and 2 talks about, it leads you into crises or chaos. When he talks about, he says in Romans chapter 2, he said, for the goodness of God leads you to repentance. In other words, you ought to respond to God's goodness. His goodness should lead you to change the way you think. But after the hardness and impenitent heart, the next verse says, the next part of that verse says, you treasure up for yourself wrath against the day of wrath, or the day of judgment speaks of crises there. The wrath there is not a direct God hitting you in the face. It is the judgment of whatever lie you're believing. When you believe a lie, you're damned. It's not, the word damned there means judgment or condemned, because he that believeth not is condemned already. In other words, you come into the judgment of whatever lie it is you're believing. In other words, if you believe you can jump off of a cliff and ain't going to hurt you, you're going to suffer the repercussions of jumping off of that cliff. If I said to you, the stove is hot and you won't listen to me, and you got to touch it, then the stove burns you, it's not God who burnt you. It's your own stupidity because you have literally let your mind become void of, of judgment, but then you have given yourself over. God gave them over. And what happens is when God gave them over, it brought them into chaos or into crises. Chaos is the end of what's not working anymore, but it's also the base where you begin again. If you want a scripture for that, look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that the earth was without form and darkness, and chaos was ruled the face of the great deep. That was the end of what was not working anymore. It was chaos and darkness. Maybe your life is like that right now. It's chaos, it's darkness, it's repercussions and crippleness. But the Spirit of God moved on the face of the water. God hovered. The Spirit of God begins to move on the water, just like it did here at the Pool of Bethesda. God begins to hover over your chaos. And right in the midst of your chaos, He troubles the water, and He hovers. The Spirit of God moves. Sometimes we don't think God is in the midst of our chaos, but right in the midst of our pain is where God is trying to bring us to a turn. We, we can respond to the goodness of God and save ourselves a lot of pain. But in Genesis 1, He says, let there be light. And when God speaks light into your chaos, the, the creation was on its way. The next step that happened was the earth began to bring forth. It starts to be fruitful. So chaos, the Spirit hovers, God says, let there be light, the earth begins to bring forth, and by the sixth day there's a man in his image after his likeness with dominion. That's the purpose of this pool of Bethesda, is to get you to rise, take up your bed, and walk, and go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. 
In other words, there's a lot of stuff that, that are, that's destroying your life. It's robbing your marriage. It's robbing your finance because it's wrong thinking. Stop believing a lie. The truth will make you free. We're out of time. I hope you've enjoyed this segment on the pool of Bethesda. Uh, we, le- we love it when you contact us, write to us, let us know you're watching. Uh, if you can, sow a seed into the ministry to help us to be able to take the gospel around the world. The easiest way to do that is go to my website at landhouse.com. Uh, and there is a place there where you can give via credit card or debit card, or you can even sign up for a monthly debit if you want to become a partner, or you can give a one-time gift. You can call the number on the screen. Someone will take your credit card number over the screen, over the phone if you want to do that, or you can send a check or money order to the address that will come up on the screen. And also there is a text-to-give number there if you'd like to text-to-give. It's very easy. We do appreciate you. We need your help to stay on the air. God bless you, and thank you for joining us again this week. I'm very excited to announce the release of my newest book. It is titled, From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. In this book, we talk about how the gospel is not about a law you have to keep. It is about receiving a life that will keep you. It is not about living this life out of fear. It is about living a life of faith. It is not about rules. It's about a relationship with a loving Father. It is about moving from the old covenant government of condemnation to the new covenant government of affirmation. It is about living life as a citizen of the kingdom right now.